0: With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers?
1: Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you in an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage.
2: Would you like to learn more about 1031 Exchanges? Then go to 1031Exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 Exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours visit 1031exchange.com.
0: Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? you can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it for me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours.
2: Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit IRAAdvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's IRAAdvantage.com.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Wednesday. You remember that uh, Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, said never let a crisis go to waste. And you can see it taken to heart with a push for gun control after every shooting. But does post-crisis legislation or policy, does it actually accomplish anything or does it make things even worse? And we can certainly see it during the pandemic. Wayne Cruz is vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Wayne, welcome back to the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me back on. I appreciate it.
0: Now, you made an appeal. Well, I'm glad to have you on. You bring a, a great perspective. But, you know, you make a great case that it would be nice if politicians would give up their never let a crisis go to waste mentality. But yeah. is there any realistic way of getting them to voluntarily do this or are the people going to have to force it on them?
4: Here's here's what worried me about this. Uh, this the COVID crisis it, when it when it broke out and when you saw the comment from Rahm Emanuel, when you heard the left going on about reset and then later talking about build back better. It occurred to me that this is the – COVID was the third, not the first, the third crisis of the 21st century. And each time it happens – of course, we had 9-11, we had the financial meltdown – each time it happens, we get new government agencies, new programs, all kinds of new spending that never rolls back, and all sorts of new regulations. I mean, we get new regulatory systems set up that grow the administrative state even before the administrators get involved. So – I thought something's got to change in this, and we've got to do something to expand intergenerational wealth, not intergenerational debt. And so I put this report together, it's called Framing an Abuse of Crisis Crisis Prevention Act, because we've got to do something to stop them. You said, can we do it? Will the politicians do it on their own? Well, they're not doing it on their own, because remember, as soon as the crisis happened, the COVID crisis, and there are all kinds of them, you mentioned you know, gun control too, but as soon as the COVID crisis happened, you had the chamber within, within hours <laughs> with letters and appeals for stimulus payment for uh, bailout payments to Congress, you had the likes of Apple and Home Depot. Profiting, billionaires' wealth set records, everybody else is cratered, and we had businesses all treated different. And Lars, the, there's nothing that has changed. If another crisis hits, they will do exactly the same thing. So that's why I put this report together on Abusive Crisis Prevention Act, because we've got to do things where we shore up individuals' wealth. We've got to shore up businesses, and just for example, in their case, we can expand the amount of retained earnings they keep because we know now that the tax limitations ought to take into account the fact that we know there's going to be a crisis every 10 years because that's what's happened this This century, so businesses more retained earnings, uh, individuals with more money set aside that can, can be tapped into a crisis with a crisis that then converts to retirement. Federalism, we could you could go on for hours about federalism, but that has been discounted by progressives and eliminated but guess what over 700 billion dollars goes to states every year even before the pandemic to pay for education transportation infrastructure social programs all that money can stay in the states to begin with so that they can shore themselves up so in other words Long story short, we've got to shore up the economy and the voluntary society within it, or there's no chance for limited government to survive. You, you can't keep doing crisis after crisis, make it impossible for future generations to, have the, to retain their own wealth and to have a government that's not overloaded with debt and also overregulated. So that's why I call for an Abuse of Crisis Prevention Act. Okay, think but, we need hearing. But, but how, would it, everything.
0: how would it actually, I mean, I could see... Because I watched what happened Mm -hmm. during the pandemic and I thought they're putting a lot of structures in place and I'll bet they're never going to give them up. All of us. I mean, I I think most people said once they get this authority, they'll never give it up or they'll always keep it in reserve, saying we might need this again. Is there any way Mm -hmm. to sunset this stuff and say the expectation is if you say we've got an emergency, like we've got a flood and, and, you know, like Mm -hmm. a town would or an individual would say there's a flood. We need to go out and plow up the front yard and make some berms and, and keep, keep the, you know, keep the farm afloat. I've seen farmers do that before. You know, they, they plow up a berm and the flood water goes somewhere else. You say, but you're not going to leave that berm there after the flood, are you? Uh, you, 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 you you (laughs) act in a certain way. I mean heck if if it got cold enough and all the power was cut off do I break up the living room furniture and burn it in the fireplace sure whatever you got to do yeah. in an emergency yeah. But then you say, well, we'll just have to live without furniture now because, because we threw all the furniture in the fireplace. No, you, you end the You say, we're going to keep on burning furniture for, for wood, for heat, honey. I'm, I'm not going to tell my wife that. And I, I, I would feel stupid doing it. Could we say when the emergency is over, the powers go away?
4: Yes. And even even before the emergency is over, I think a key thing that needs to be done is remember presidents now and even Trump did it with the eviction moratorium and the payroll tax holiday and things like that. You have to make sure now that Congress extends any emergency declaration. So right now, the president, you know, like 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 now, Biden will just continue the continue extending the the deadline on, on the COVID emergency. Congress, Senator Mike Lee of Utah has a bill to do this. Any emergency declarations that's 30 days old, Congress would have to approve it or the emergency lapses. But I'll tell you, the big hurdle that we have in, in rolling this stuff back, the left means it when they talk about reset and they talk about taking this opportunity during a crisis to put into place the other things they want to do. In my view, and I talk about this in the paper, I think the left's North Star for their reset is the universal basic income. And I know there are yep. libertarians and so forth who, who give arguments for this. I, I hate think it. The universal basic income is the plural of apocalypse. You cannot do that because when you get the, the entire society hooked on. Um, on that kind of a, that kind of a, uh, that kind of a seed money, all the time, there's no way to roll back government. And you could see the inklings of the universal basic income in the stimulus payments that went out, even to rich people. You know, and, anybody, and the people like, in all, prison. You could, you for God's sake, just pay it back. Nobody, yeah. yeah, exactly. And nobody had to pay a penny back. And then even businesses got loans who never needed the loans, let alone the fraud and everything that went on. But businesses got money who who didn't need it. They never had to pay it back either. So you could see the inkling in, in, the, in the, just the rapid way that this, the COVID uh, payouts went. You could no, see it's, it, it's the generation of, of what's happening. And, and Lars, if, if another crisis hits, God forbid, they'll do exactly the same thing again if they're not stopped. And so we'll have to discipline, discipline this in some significant ways. And that's what I'm trying to push.
0: And maybe some other kind of balance, because, Wayne, I talked to plenty of people, including my my adult son and daughter, uh, stepson and daughter, mm-hmm. who said, hey, I didn't take a stimulus check. I didn't get any extra pay for being, you know, for sitting on the couch and playing video games. I worked my job every day. What do I get? Right. And the rest of America yes. is saying all these people got all this money, but it wasn't everybody. It wasn't even a majority and especially the unemployment money, that's Wayne Cruz, Vice President of Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Wayne, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show, and if you trust her, tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network. Always a pleasure, and I'll get to your calls in just a moment. I don't want to miss out on a great naysayer, but it's always a pleasure to welcome the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter from Willamette Week, Mr. Nigel Jaquist. And Nigel, I understand, has made his debut on the big screen, but this is going to be a serious subject to talk about. Nigel, welcome back. And and how is it that you made your way into moving pictures?
5: Well, uh, a friend of mine from journalism school who lives in Portland has made a bunch of documentaries. And uh, back in July of 2020, she sent me an email. We were all working in our basement at that time and said, hey, let's meet for virtual coffee. There's a hell of a local story I'd love to get your help on. And it was the story the Boy Scouts had recently gone bankrupt nationally, and um, a big reason for that bankruptcy was a 2010 court case here that was decided by another old friend of yours, Carrie, uh, Kelly Clark. Um, yeah. In that case, the the uh, a, a victim sued the Boy Scouts and won uh, a, a settlement of nearly twenty million dollars. But more importantly, what happened in that case was that the Boy Scouts were faced were forced for the first time ever. To put into the public record uh, part of the secret files that they had been keeping since the 1920s which detailed uh, pedophiles uh, within the within the boy Scout organization and so we uh, when the Boy Scouts went bankrupt, uh, we knew there was a story, and my uh, colleague Irene Taylor had run into a woman who all day long uh, her job is to take phone calls from. Uh, former boy scouts were sexually abused and we thought that was a good starting point for a a story
0: no it is a great starting point does this one uh, kind of does this sound an awful lot like or echo what happened with the catholic church where they knew there was a problem and they didn't either didn't or wouldn't or couldn't act to stop the problem so they
5: decided if we can't do that we'll cover it up many many similarities i i think uh you know, one important difference uh, is that the Boy Scouts are uh, even more sort of deeply woven into the fabric of American society, perhaps, than the Catholic Church. No, no offense to the, to the Catholic Church, but the Boy Scouts are in, you know, pretty much every community in this in this country. And they are pretty much, uh, you know, Eagle Scouts and other uh, men who have been Boy Scouts our CEOs, they're leaders of universities, they're leaders of arts organizations, they're in the media, they are literally everywhere. There have been more than 100 million uh, boys have been Boy Scouts, and most of them are still alive today. So, you know, the, the, the scope of the organization, and, you know, I, let's face it, you and I have both used the expression that guy's a real Boy Scout. I mean, it's a term that means integrity. The, the, yep. the words Boy Scout mean integrity, they talk about service. And so, it's just kind of an astonishing situation.
0: Yeah, that they ended up because it's very clear that the organization covered it up. And I, and I guess, uh, look, I was a, a Boy Scout at one point. I was a Weeblos. I was a Cub Scout. I, I did all of those things. Never got never made it to Eagle Scout. But but the the thing that troubles me about this, Nigel, is I see organizations like this that run into these you know this problem. They say, well, we've got a scout leader and we need to get rid of him. Why? Well, because he's, he's doing things he shouldn't be doing with the kids, maybe even criminal things. Well, uh, I, I don't know that the Boy Scouts are covered under the mandatory reporter law, but even still, you should do the right thing. The problem is, is and tell me if, if I'm not right about this, the problem is, legally, if you say we're, we're firing you from the Boy Scouts either as a paid person within the organization or as a volunteer because you're a pervert, uh, you know, that, that if that gets public, the organization gets sued. If you don't do anything, the organization gets sued. Uh, if if you if you try to block certain people from taking part in the organization, you get sued. And and it almost seems as though I'm not making excuses, Ron. I'm just saying, in some cases, you have almost no option that gives you a an option to do the right thing and and still survive it. Uh, am, am I wrong? Do you think I'm wrong about that? Well,
5: here's the problem. It, it, it's complicated, of course, but. Through 1991, uh, the Boy Scouts had an explicit policy that said that we will not tell law enforcement, we will not tell members of the community, we will not tell the employer of the scout official. You know, these are volunteer scout officials; they have day jobs. We will not tell anybody, uh, and so I, I think that was that was a, an enormous problem. And uh, you're right; you 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 run some risk when you. Uh, take action but if they had just simply in many cases reported to law enforcement said look we've got information here we're not cops could you do an investigation and find out if there's been a crime committed here but in many 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 cases they simply just told the guy to move on and what we learned is that in many cases those guys who moved on moved on to another troop because you know they want to be where the boys are and boy scouts are where the boys are
0: yeah. And and I've had prosecutors, including my friend Josh Marquis, who's said to me, you know, while there are a lot of worthy people that are attracted to jobs in the Boy Scouts or jobs as gym, you know, gymnastics coaches or whatever. The problem is a lot of the perverts, the ones that want to go out and commit sexual crimes against children, also gravitate to those jobs, because, as you said, that's where the boys are. I'm, I'm also aware, though, as an employer. If somebody calls me up and says, what kind of employee was that person? Well, I could probably, you know, you, you know, I'm full of opinions. On the other hand, the smart thing to do is to say, uh, that person worked here from this date to that date. And that's about it. Because if I say anything more, uh, unless it's entirely positive, then, then I get sued. And, and everybody who's an employer knows that. And the Boy Scouts are, they're not employers of all of those people. The volunteers, I think, are not considered employees. But if you call the cops and say, hey, we think this guy was doing things that, that were illegal against children, sexual crimes, and then it turns out the, the, it's not upheld, you know, or they, the police look and they say, we, we don't see enough there. And then the person sues you and says, you've defamed me. They're, they're probably going to win and and so i i think it gives them a a tough set of options so but you're right if they had done the right thing from the get-go and certainly not have a a policy especially when you're supposed to be loyal trustworthy and all that uh that you don't say and we're not going to talk to the cops when we know things are going wrong
5: yeah i mean look the the setup was perfect for pedophiles because you're taking kids into the woods you're taking them swimming you're you know you've got them in tents which have no security they don't have cell phones they uh also, you're talking about adolescent boys who want merit badges. They want to advance in rank. They want the approval of the Scoutmaster. And in many cases, families are bringing their sons to the Boy Scouts because they're, you know, there's a broken home or the parents are too busy, don't have enough time for the kids. So you have incredibly vulnerable kids who are essentially just ripe for the picking, and they want the approval of that. Master, they want those mirror badges they want to advance uh, it, it, it has been a very very easy situation for pedophiles to exploit
0: so the documentary called leave no trace which is the name of it and that of course for those of us in boy scouts who recognize that phrase it debuted what about 10 days ago at the tribeca film festival what kind of reaction did it get do you know
5: well, this is not an uplifting film, but it, but it, it got a rave review from the Wall Street Journal's critic, who was a notoriously tough critic. critic and the, the audience was, I would say, moved. You know, they they weren't. You're not. It's not the kind of movie that leaves you clear, cheering and clapping. But the audience, I think, responded and and got what we were trying to convey, which is, you know, ultimately we want parents to think. Very, very hard about even the most respectable organizations. Are you putting your child in a place that is safe or dangerous? And how can you, uh, how can you avoid having happen what happened to so you know to tens of thousands of Boy Scouts? So yeah, and it can be seen. Uh, just to plug the movie, it it, it uh, debuts nationally tomorrow on the streaming platform Hulu. Uh, and uh, so I hope people will watch it, and I hope they'll think about. It.
0: Nigel Jake was from WE.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
5: Welcome back to the
0: Lars Larson Show, the best conversation in talk journalism, and your calls always welcome at eight six six Hey Lars. I thought we'd talk with my friend Frank Gaffney, the founder of the Center for Security Policy. Uh, not just about what green energy policies are doing to your pocketbook right now, and it's devastating for most families, and I don't think it's going to get any better soon, but about what it does to the national security of our country. Frank, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. So It's good to be with you. So about these green energy policies, uh, the president is trying to stopgap this by putting a million barrels a day out of our strategic reserves. Can we start there? Because, Frank, I always thought these strategic reserves were there to make sure that if America had a major calamity, it could be a war, uh, it could be uh, a natural disaster like a hurricane that disrupts refining or uh, an earthquake, say, on the West Coast, on the Ring of Fire, uh, that that we'd have that just in case. And he's burning down that reserve very quickly.
6: Well, burning it down is one way of putting it. He's uh, simply expending it. In circumstances uh, very different from the kind of emergencies you've described, Lars. And no, you're absolutely right. That was the point, is if, God forbid, uh, some terrible natural or man-induced disaster is inflicted upon this country, having uh, those reserves of oil to uh, fuel the economy, our society, um, could be truly uh, the difference between life and death uh, for large numbers of us. And the president, um, for what seemed to be the most specious of reasons, has decided to try to cover the damage that has been done, uh, notably in terms of inflation, by his uh, so-called green Energy policies uh, to mitigate them, however, uh, minimally by releasing a million barrels a day from the strategic petroleum reserves. And um, I don't think it's having any appreciable effect on uh, inflation or uh, in mitigating the damage that his so called Green New Deal policies are having, but it is creating. Uh, and I think we'll continue to do so if it, if it, this policy persists, um, new vulnerabilities that uh, we certainly shouldn't be uh, willingly accepting.
0: I mean, I think if I know the numbers right, around 700 million barrels are in the reserve. They'd already used some of it uh, earlier on and and then he announced I'm going to release 180 million barrels and we started doing the math and said it's somewhere around a third to half of the reserve uh could be gone by the time the election rolls around and and at some point having filled it I think with less expensive oil at 40 or 50 bucks a barrel and then flushing it out into the marketplace at north of $100 a barrel unless the oil prices come down sometime soon if they're going to refill it, they're going to have to refill it with expensive oil again, which is going to cost more than it took to originally fill it up, which that, that seems especially foolish as well in a country that's got major financial problems.
6: Indeed. I mean, we're, we're looking at um, impacts on, for example, um, the United States military arising from these inflated oil prices and, and other energy costs uh, that are simply going to make it impossible for our armed forces to do the kind of training they need, especially as there is now a distinct prospect, I'm afraid, of war with China, the old-fashioned kind of kinetic war, as they call it, not just the unrestricted sort that we talk about many weeks. But this is happening um, to our forces Uh, in other ways as well, Uh, it is uh, simply going to make it impossible, given that we will have to pay considerably more for the um, debt that we've incurred, Uh, much of it, by the way, to the same people that are threatening war against us, the Chinese Communist Party. um, it, 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 It will mean we simply don't have the discretionary funding available to modernize our forces, to replace the equipment that is worn out or that is simply now increasingly obsolescent. So in all these ways, there's a very distinct and very deleterious impact that's going to be felt on the American people, uh, on their um, personal financial situation, I'm afraid, but also uh, their national security.
0: And I guess look Frank you don't hear me advocating why don't we do what the Chinese are doing but when it comes to to going up against an enemy or a potential adversary in a war it, it it might do us good to say well what are they doing and you've pointed out they're they're stocking up on oil they're stocking up on uranium they're stocking up on rare earths and fertilizer and food and if you say well why do you suppose they're doing that because they they know maybe tough times are coming ahead uh and and if you're adversary potential adversary is doing that doesn't it make sense that if you're not matching that action in some way and getting ready for those times they're planning to use the abundance of resources they have to know that they they might even be able to to wait us out we're literally in a country frank and let me throw this example out there's at least one little county in michigan that has told people we can't send police cars out because until our new budget starts we don't have any money to put gas in them that's how crazy things are right now in this country.
6: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Lars, uh, especially when you add into the mix that the nation that is engaged in this hoarding of these kinds of commodities, um, some of which are really essential to uh, our uh, economic Viability, our our society, our population—you know—being uh, uh, fed, for among other considerations, those folks are in a position not only to deny us access to these commodities, but to ensure that their own people have them. In the event that a war they precipitate causes disruptions in supply chains, and they certainly will, given you know, our dependence on so much of our supplies from China. So all of this adds up to uh, a, a, a case of, of egregious malfeasance on the part of our government. If it's not looking hard at what our prospective enemy is doing and trying at a minimum to mitigate the effects of it.
0: Although, Frank, if it could ever be worse than what you just suggested, Malfeasance is just not doing your job the right way. What if, what if this is being done by the Biden administration uh, deliberately? Because a lot of us believe that Joe Biden, through his son Hunter, has been compromised by communist China. And if he walks us into the kind of economic situation and energy situation and military situation in which, when China says we're taking Taiwan back, for example, and the United States is forced to say we'd really like to fight that, but we don't have the cash and we don't have the energy. And we don't have the weapons, and they do, uh, that you have to just simply acquiesce to those people. And and I honestly so believe I that Joe Biden is is seriously compromised with the Chinese communists.
6: Oh, no, I do, too. I, I don't want to niggle a dime here, but uh, I think misfeasance is what you just described um, in terms of just not doing the job properly. Uh, malfeasance is malevolently, purposefully not performing your tasks, uh, your duty to our country. And and I think you put your finger on it, Lars. This is a moment when that uh, not just incompetence, but purposeful wrecking operation is putting us in grave danger. And that's why I wanted to raise this alarm about the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, because it's just
0: Frank Gaffney is the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. Frank Thank you so much for the, uh, for the time. Uh, emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Your calls, welcome to it. 866. Hey, Lars. Uh, send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the brand new question every day at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. You know, Joe Biden these days might not even be able to remember how to tie his shoes, but can you trust him to have America's best interest in his more than two dozen equity plans. You may not have even heard about these, but I want to hear the details from our friend Devin Westhill, who is president and general counsel at the Center for Equal Opportunity and a legal expert at the Federalist Society. Devin, welcome back.
7: Hi, Lars. Thanks for having me
0: back. You bet. Now, every time I hear equity lately, uh, I, I just think, I hope people understand the distinction. Equality is equality of opportunity, equality of access. I get that. Equity means somebody gets to decide who ought to win in whatever particular contest we're talking about, getting into school, getting into a job, those kinds of things. Equity, as far as I'm concerned, is anti-American because it suggests that, well, like George Orwell's animal farm, all of the animals are equal. Some are just more equal than others.
7: Yeah, no, I'm glad you say it that way as well, Lars, because equity is not just un-american, it's anti-american. Uh, in fact, Kamala Harris, I think, said this best when she said, what equity is, it's very much different than equality. Equity is making sure that we all come out at the end of the day the same place. Um, that's not what America is about. America is about uh, pulling yourself up to the heights that you can uh, and making sure that others don't fall below a minimum threshold. Uh, that's what America is about. Equity is, is anti-american, not just un-american. But uh, I am here again, Lars, and I'm <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry to say this, but uh, to say again that the Biden administration uh, is, is, is head and shoulders above any other admin in U.S. history uh, and imbuing race consciousness uh, in every aspect of the federal government. You remember the American Rescue Plan, $2 billion towards a lot of equity and, and racial equity stuff. The Infrastructure Plan, a $1 billion, the same sort of stuff. Well, the the equity order, an executive order they'll signed on day one of the Biden administration required certain agencies produce equity act- Plans that you suggested over two dozen now have been produced. Now, the problem with those other, uh, the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure plan, and so forth, was that they were explicit about benefiting BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, et cetera, and, and they were attacked uh, legally on 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 that basis. And the new equity action plans, they've been using buzzwords instead, like socially disadvantaged, underserved, underrepresented as you just suggested, equity. And basically what this means is people can benefit who are not white or not heterosexual.
0: But that's, you know, doesn't that just fly in the face of everything in the Constitution, everything in the founders' minds when they said, we want everyone to be treated equally under the law, and and then to turn around and say, but if you're a farmer and you're in trouble, we can help you out as long as you're black. If you're white, you don't get anything, no soup for you. Uh, it do- that doesn't sound like equality it sounds like somebody predetermining an outcome that trouble for one and and it doesn't sound too much different than perhaps the jim crow days where somebody a black man like you trying to buy a house in a community might just say well we don't sell houses to your kind you know and we'd say well that was wrong you say well isn't it equally wrong to 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 turn it around and say yeah if you're white uh you're you're uh, you're in trouble you're not going to get the kind of help that somebody somebody similarly situated, as you lawyers like to say, would get that help. But I'm sorry, you're the wrong color.
7: Well, you're right um, that, that this is um, now anti-American, but also... Uh, sort of anti-constitutional, right? The Constitution says, you know, all are equal before the law. Um, But you have to understand that today's, and you do understand this, uh, today's progressive left is not interested in the Constitution. Actually, if they're at all interested in the Constitution, it's because they want to uh, change it, abolish it, uh, really um, uh, raise to the ground some of the fundamental uh, governing principles of this country uh, in an attempt, and this is a part of what the Biden administration has been doing, uh, to root out what they see as systemic discrimination in many aspects of American life and in the federal government. But, um,
0: but, yeah. but Devin, you're a lawyer, right? You walk into court, you have evidence, right? You, and if you don't have good evidence or somebody else has better evidence, you lose. Well, if you say, well, there's this systemic racism, and I've asked people this, I've said, okay, where is it? Well. Their idea of systemic racism is like fairy dust. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't touch it. You can't even say, here's the effect. I mean, if somebody suddenly flooded my studio with carbon dioxide, I'd fall unconscious. And they'd say, well, even though you can't see it or smell it, we know what made Lars fall unconscious. We can measure that thing. This is where you say there's there's this effect that's happening on people. It's bad for people of color. But you can't see it. You can't measure it. You can't detect it in any way, shape or form. But you must believe us. It is there. Is that well, about what we're being asked to, to believe?
7: To, to, to some extent, yes. But you have to understand, right, that there are uh, massive disparities between uh, the races on average um, when you look at things like socioeconomic status and economic achievement and so on and so forth. And so True. that is what that, that is what the progressive left is pointing to when they say, look, look at you know how some people live in this country and how others live in this country. The one thing that's separating them, uh, you know, all else being equal, is their skin color. Now, of course, there are many other factors that go into play here, but that's what's used to say, look, there must be some sort of systemic discrimination, because why would such a large proportion of the country... You know, be doing so well, and a large proportion of the country uh, be doing not so well.
0: Uh, well, Your, your, and, your Honor, y- Your Honor, you know what i do? I'd flip it around and I'd say, Well, absolutely right. That's Devin Westhill from the Center for Equal Opportunity. Devin, thank you
3: very much. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: That's right it is, and your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And one of the things I've always done is I disclose if I think I might have a dog in the fight. If we're going to talk about a subject and I think I might have a bias one direction or the other... I identify that bias just so you have it to understand uh, what my bias might be as we talk about something. Craig Bannister is a reporter with CNS News. And because we're going to talk about guns and concealed carry permits, Craig, if I haven't told you already, I have carry permits. I, I don't have my Arizona permit anymore, but I have permits that cover about a dozen states and I'm able to carry a concealed weapon in those states. And then there are another I think 18 or 19 states that are uh, constitutional carry which means I'd be legal to carry there and I own a pistol I own pistols and and I carry a pistol routinely when I'm away from my home if I'm not going to a federal building or an airport or some other place where it would be against the law. Craig, welcome back by the way. Hi Lars. Hi, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is so we all heard the decision, two great victories last week, Roe v. Wade overturned, and then the decision that New York's law that effectively uh, made the state a may issue state where the state could simply deny concealed carry permits to most Americans and effectively tell them you have Second Amendment rights, but they stop at the minute you exit your front door of your house or apartment. Um, that that's been thrown out but there are states now like california that are doing everything they can to block people from getting those permits within the restrictions of the court's decision would you mind telling my audience how that's working
8: well as you mentioned the supreme court decided that uh, states like california can no longer use what's called a uh, proper cause standard to deny concealed carry permits. Basically, on a proper cause, you have to show that you have a proper reason for um, uh, wanting a concealed carry, uh, which in essence comes down to you need to justify uh, being able to uh, exercise your constitutional right. Uh, so the Supreme Court struck that down. Um, and as you know, the proper cause is a pretty subjective, uh, standard. Well, uh, the day after the Supreme court ruling on Friday, um, California's attorney general, uh, Rob Bonta issued a legal alert, um, uh, to, uh, all California district attorneys, police chiefs, sheriffs, county councils, city attorneys, giving them guidance uh, about what to do in uh, the wake of this Supreme Court uh, uh, decision. And in it, um, and there's a link to it in my, in my article, in it, he, he says, he tells them um, that uh, the Supreme Court decision does not affect other statutory requirements um, governing public carry licenses, including authorities must still require proof that the applicant is of good moral character.
0: Well, isn't that just as ambiguous as proper, uh, you know, the, the other, uh, the, the proper proper cause, because as I understand it, Craig, I mean, I've used the example before that there are people who are diamond merchants who are down on 47th street, New York. I live thousands of miles away, but I've been there a time or two. It's kind of a fun place to walk through lots and lots of ice. And my wife loves going through there, seeing all the diamonds, even though we can't afford them, but. But when you say, well, I carry a million dollars worth of diamonds around on a regular basis, you know, going from store to store because I'm one of these diamond merchants. And you say, well, that's not proper cause. They, They almost wanted you to say, well, I've been assaulted three or four times and robbed twice. And then they say, "Okay, you have proper proper cause that or having a pile of money and or a lot of political influence seem to be the only ways to get a permit. But if they say, well, we, we, we're we not going to say proper cause, but we are going to say you have to be a good moral character, isn't that ambiguity big enough to, to drive a truck through?
8: Well, it certainly is. And uh, the attorney general goes on to say that uh, an applicant's character and
6: temperament,
8: yes, your temperament can be used to determine moral uh, character. And he lists a number of ways that you can uh, judge uh good moral character and that is uh honesty which seems uh pretty vague trustworthiness diligence reliability integrity candor all subjective um uh, the uh the scariest uh ones here are absence of hatred and racism well as you know uh the left tends to call anything they don't like hatred and racism yes they do uh, and then, on top of that, another way they can disqualify uh, you, uh, according to uh, this guidance, uh, is for lack of "quote unquote" fiscal stability. Well, that would suggest that uh, the underprivileged uh, uh, citizens of the state uh, can't um, uh, can't get a, a carry permit. Does that mean that getting a carry permit
0: it, it might come down to your credit rating? Well, you've got a low credit rating there. It's, it looks like you don't pay your bills. You're not a good moral character. Or the one on honesty, Craig, I call my show Honestly Provocative Talk. Why? I'll be honest with people, I'll tell them, and I try to back up everything I say with some factual backup. And, and the things that are just pure opinion, they're opinion. But one of my opinions is that the November 3rd, 2020 election was not a valid election, that things were that were done that that broke the law. But today, if you question the election, they say, you're a liar. You're participating in the big lie. Under the big lie theory, uh, California's DAs could simply uh, say, we're not going to issue a carry permit to anybody who believes that the November 3rd election was less than, uh, what would they call it, the the, the most honest, straightforward uh, You election know, election in American history, which I think is hogwash. But if I say that California, I don't live in California, but California could say, well, Lars, you're not being honest. You're saying November 3rd was a fraudulent election. Yes, I am. And that's my opinion. Well, for that opinion, we don't think you're honest. So you can't have a carry permit.
8: Well, exactly. And another one of the the criteria that the uh, attorney general lists is respect for the rights of others. Uh so but that would that again, that's pretty vague. So if I don't believe in gay marriage or illegal immigration, is that being disrespectful of the rights of others?
0: Oh, I'll give you a better one, Craig, and it's more present from last week. What if you say I don't believe there is a right to abortion? And you say, even the Supreme Court agrees with me on that and they say, Well see, you don't respect the rights of a woman to kill her unborn baby, so therefore you don't respect the rights of others
8: right uh, it's it's you're being hateful uh now as as we uh you and i have, have both uh, suggested and uh, i'm sure many of your your listeners realize um viewpoint based criteria for uh for denying people's constitutional rights is uh is very problematic yeah. um in fact um a uh, an attorney for um or I'm sorry a law professor at UCLA uh wrote wrote in um Reason um, magazine recently that he, he said basically here he said uh that the viewpoint-based criteria that the AG's office is recommending would violate both the First and Second Amendments.
0: I believe it. That's Craig Manister from CNS. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I will get back to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. Uh, There's a number I want you to firmly implant in your mind. They keep track of the number of people apprehended trying to cross America's southern border. Uh, The Customs and Border Patrol do. And in the month of April, the most recent month for which we have an entire month of data, the number is 234,000 apprehensions. That is the highest number ever recorded in American history. And you say, well, is that all of them? Well, no, it's not all of them. They're the gotaways. They're the ones the CBP never even saw. So I thought we'd talk about that with Tom Homan, the former acting director for ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, and the author of the book, Defend the Border and Save Lives. He's a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Tom, it's good to have you back on.
9: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So about a year ago, Joe Biden turned to Kamala Harris and said, here, you take the hot potato. He handed her uh, control of or she made her the border czar. She doesn't seem to have done anything with it. And Joe doesn't seem to be doing anything with it. What exactly are we supposed to conclude from the fact that we've now seen the highest number of apprehensions ever by CBP? They've got their hands more than full and, uh, and nothing's being done about the problem.
9: Oh No, they're, they're more concerned with the optics of the crisis than the crisis itself. That's why the only thing the Secretary of has done is send more resources to the southern border so they can process and release quicker. Because you don't want the optics of 15,000 Haitians on the bridge. You don't want the optics of overcrowded facilities. So in the middle of the surge, what do you want to do? Send more resources to process and release quicker. That way, it doesn't appear to be any problems. But this administration hasn't done one thing. Enforcement strategy to, to slow the flow. Nothing. That's why the Secretary, he, he insults every man and woman in the Border Patrol. He made a trip down there again today. The man doesn't realize they don't want him down there because he has yet, in one town hall meeting with these men and women in the Border Patrol, Say, here's, here's the plan, folks. Here's our strategy for securing the border. He goes down there, for a few pictures, a little dog and pony show, and goes back to D.C. and does nothing to help the men and women in the Border Patrol. These guys are overwhelmed. He just said every month, record-breaking, record-breaking. Now we got the highest record ever, 234,000 Not another month on record, that kind of number. He has failed every month to have been the secretary, and you're right on the gotaways. Last month, there were 67,000 Godaways. So this month, there's going to be more than Godaways. So this, this border is out of control. Border is already overwhelmed to the point. Up to 70%, 70% of Border agents are no longer on the line. They're processing people in facilities, which means our borders wide open to drugs, criminals and uh, no respect to terrorists.
0: And Tom can explain to my audience. They don't work in the trade like you worked in the trade for ICE as the acting director. Uh, but when you say process, they might think, well, uh, you mean they're, they're making them legal. They're not making them legal. What are they actually doing with the I think it was one hundred and seventeen thousand that were released into the U.S. in April?
9: Well, it depends on what sector, and some sectors are doing NTA notes to appear from an immigration judge. Some gives you a notice to report, which means you're supposed to turn yourself into a nearest ICE office when you get to your final destination. But here's what they're doing. They're processing getting their names, never gets some biographical information down. Then they're going to give them a, a taxpayer-funded plane ticket and flying anywhere in the country they want to go. To so their final destination New York. That's where they're going. So, you know, the taxpayers in the United States are, are completing the final step in this criminal conspiracy. But they, and, and bottom line is, if we look at the data, nearly half of them won't show up in court. And yet the half that does show up in court, 90% lose their case. Ninety, eight out of nine. I mean, excuse me, nine out of ten lose their case. The number's actually 87.8. Lose their case. How many leave when the judge tells them must leave? If you're an unaccompanied alien child, you leave 3% of the time. If you're a family unit, you leave 6% of the time. So, look, releasing the United States, even if, even if they show up in court, means very little about will they actually leave the country as ordered, because for the most part, they won't.
0: Yeah, and, and, and why would they? Because if they don't leave, what are the consequences in most of the sanctuary cities around America? Which I think, well, is there any... Let me ask you this question, Tom, because you
9: probably know better like, than I do. But, 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 let me, let me, go, go ahead. The whole sure. country is a sanctuary. The whole country is a sanctuary. Because remember yeah. what the secretary said. secretary told ICE that you can't arrest somebody for simply being here illegally. you got to have more. So even if they get ordered removed by a judge and don't leave, who's looking for them? Nobody. The secretary said, being the country legally on its own, it's not enough to be arrested. What else did the secretary do? Two weeks after that, he told ICE, you're no longer allowed on work site enforcement operations, which means most people come to this country, get a job. When they get a job, they'll never be arrested at a work site because ICE can't arrest that work site. And they can't arrest a person illegally just because a person's illegally in the United States. They got nothing to fear. So this secretary sent a, a clear message to the rest of the world, even in, even during the. The, the highest illegal immigration we've ever seen, you enter a country illegally, you won't be detained. And if you can lose your court case, you're not going to be removed. And by the way, you can also get a job.
0: All of that and no consequence. Whatsoever. So I'm surprised anybody leaves. In fact, the notice to report, Tom, does anybody do any illegal aliens who've already crossed perhaps hundreds of thousands of miles and they get into the country and they get a free, free plane ticket somewhere and then they're told, uh, show up at your local ICE office, Do any of them actually do that? And if they do, what happens?
9: Anything? Some do. Some do. uh, Because they know there's a chance they may win in court. But even if they lose, they're not losing, like I just explained. Why not roll the dice, show up in court, and see if if the judge believes you that you're escaping fear and persecution and lets you stay here with legal documentation? Why not take the risk, even if you lose? No one's looking for you. No one's going to remove you, and you can still get a job. I mean, if I'm that person, I'm going to show up in court just to roll the dice. because I might get something out of it. Like I said, about 10% do. But why not roll the dice? Because there's no consequence at the end. If you get ordered removed, you're not leaving. So it's a, it's a win-win.
0: And, Tom, there's something else that I've had people say. I say, well, they say, but they're going to work on legalizing their status. I was told by an immigration lawyer once, I said, if I enter the country, the United States, illegally, is there any way to legalize my status? Now, short of an asylum declaration or a refugee declaration, if I'm just your plain vanilla illegal alien and I say I walk down to the INS office, said, by the way, I'm here illegally, but I'd really like to legalize my status and make my status legal. Is there any way to do that under the law?
9: No. Short of, of Congress come up with an amnesty plan, which you're all waiting for, in again, in the middle of this, Historic crisis we see on the border, historic numbers. Congress is still running their mouth about the amnesty, which only brings more people because this country's showing over and over again: even if you lose your case, you stay in this country legally. If you hang out long enough, we make up with an amnesty. So, no, you're exactly right. There's no legal way to do it. They have to come up some sort of amnesty program, which I'm totally against. And they need to secure the damn border. We're in historic high, and what scares me more than anything is the Godaways. If they've arrested 42 people on the terrorist screening database, how many of the 700,000 got that Joe Biden became president from 161 different countries, some of those countries sponsored terrorism? If you don't think not a single one of the 700,000 people that crossed that board didn't get caught from a uh, country that sponsors terrorism, then you're just not paying attention. This scares the hell out of me. I've been doing this for 35 years. I've never been more concerned about the safety and security of this nation than I am right now.
0: Yeah, I am too, Tom, and that's why we appreciate you coming on. And over this last weekend, the Laguna Woods church shooting, his book is called Defend the Border and Save Lives. He is Tom Homan, the former acting director for ICE. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show
3: you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show
0: well it's one thing when they cancel out people in cancel culture who are big time celebrities and that tends to get a lot of attention for example there's at least one theory going that the uh the background story on uh buzz lightyear uh that's called lightyear uh that that they canceled out tim allen's role and that uh, the other is that perhaps they just wrote the movie differently. And that uh, but you would think they'd find a way to include him. But those get the big attention. What doesn't get as much attention is when regular folks, you know, including college students, end up falling to cancel culture. So I thought we'd talk with Jen Cabani about that. She's an editor with The College Fix, and she joins us now. Jen, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So this is happening a lot, hundreds and hundreds of times on college campuses, so much so that the College Fix even has a database?
10: Yes, there are 1,555 entries in our campus cancel culture database, about 200 of which were added in the last year alone.
0: Now, would you mind describing for my audience what's the nature of those? I mean, what, give me an example of how cancel culture goes down. And who's it hitting? This is hitting 18, 19, 20-year-old college students?
10: Okay, well, let me give you three examples of the most ridiculous cancellations over the last year. Um, just to kind of, kind of paint a picture. So one example is when the University of Wisconsin-Madison removed a 10-ton boulder because some students considered it racist. Um, another example is when the University of Washington demoted a top female scientist because she was uh, dressed as Michael Jackson at a Halloween party. Uh, another example is when Columbia University scrubbed its association with uh, its alumnus, Dr. Dr. Oz, because um, they don't like you know, his politics and they don't like his medical advice. So these are just three examples of the many, many we have listed on our database, and it's broken down by mascot, you know, honorary degrees, student events, professor comments, that kind of thing.
0: You know, Jen, you mentioned Dr. Oz. He wasn't my choice. I actually chose somebody else in that race, and he ended up winning uh, in the primary. But one of the things I noticed about that was the timing, because apparently there were folks in medicine who said, "We, we don't like the medical advice that that, uh, Dr. Oz has been offering. But those complaints have been around for four or five years. But all of a sudden, when he ran as a Republican, and not only as a Republican, but the evil of all evils with the endorsement of the orange man, you know, this is how the left looks at it. All of a sudden, the complaints they'd had around for four years came right to the fore, and they said, well, we have to cancel him now. Am I wrong on that timing, or am I right?
10: No, you're right on the timing. They the the comments and concerns had been around for years, uh but they did it this year. They they removed his faculty uh page and any any mention of him on their on its website uh a couple months ago. And that was, you know, as the primary was heating up and it looked like he might win and they just wanted nothing to do with him. And so that's the type of cancellation. We also had schools that uh, rescinded their honorary degrees from Rudy Giuliani and Michael Flynn this year as another example. We also had many professors who were fired or suspended for saying something that didn't fall uh, under the progressive left-wing orthodoxy that controls campuses today.
0: Well, and the, the funny thing about, there's really nothing funny about the the example of General Michael Flynn, but I've talked about his case plenty. He got set up by the FBI. And, and I guess I know over the years I've covered lots and lots of stories about people who have been badly treated by the system, you know, and and they were falsely accused, falsely arrested, falsely convicted, falsely imprisoned. And, and many of them involved people, BIPOC people, people of color. And you say, well, that's wrong. That's wrong that that person was treated badly. Flynn, Flynn goes to work for Trump, gets set up openly by the FBI, uh, charged falsely and finally ends up beating it. And when I explained To my audience, what the crime was, you know, that he had a conversation on the phone with a guy he was supposed to be talking to, the Russian ambassador, and the FBI set him up. They came and said, hey, tell us about the conversation. They had a transcript of the conversation. They didn't need to know about it, but they knew if we get him to recount the conversation and say, did you talk about this? Did you talk about that? I could do that to virtually, I could do that to you, Jen. I mean, if we had a conversation and then a couple of weeks later, I, I said, by the way, can we talk about that conversation? I'll bet I could trip you up in a lie. And that's exactly what the FBI did to him. You'd think he'd be viewed as a person who was set up, badly treated, abused, his family threatened and everything else, and finally managed to come out the other side. He ought to be a hero to a lot of, a lot of college kids.
10: And you make an excellent point, And I would argue that the uh, folks, what, he was canceled or his degree was rescinded by the University of Rhode Island. They probably never heard the other side. But what's interesting is uh, the reason that they can't, they rescinded Flynn's honorary degree is because, and here's part of their reason, quote, in November 2021, during a rally in San Antonio, Texas, General Flynn called for the establishment of one religion in the U.S., his his behavior was widely condemned as a violation of the doctrine of religious freedom enshrined in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. What? So something sort of as silly as that was part of their reasoning. So, it, look, it boils down to they don't like what you say. They don't like what you stand for. They don't like what, what you believe. You get canceled. You get scrubbed. You get erased, memory hole, censored. So this is the problem with um, – Again, honorary degrees, guest speakers. Today is a perfect example. I mean, it's perfect timing on having me on your show because at the university, George Washington University in our nation's capital, they're doing away with their colonials nickname. So uh, literally, that just was announced today. So it, there's no end in sight. This has been a problem that's been going on for years and years, and it, and it keeps getting worse. Uh, there's just absolutely no tolerance when it comes to our history, our traditions, our, our, our shared common uh, backgrounds. Uh, they're really trying to erase and um, kind of rewrite history. And that was the point of launching this database, because we we're trying to keep track of it all and quantify the problem.
0: No, and it's smart to do that because Jen, many times I'll say, well, I've heard of dozens of examples of that and people say, well, cite them. You know, and I'll say, well, I don't have a list of them. And, and, and I wish I had the copious free time to go out and make lists of all the interesting <laughs> things I run across. But I'm glad you told me the background on, on Flynn because. Listen. If you ask me, Jen, I'm a Protestant Christian, okay, and I understand the, the the Constitution says you can be any religion you want in America. You can follow no religion whatsoever. You can believe in God. You can disbelieve in God. All right. That's what the that's the constraint on the government. On me, I could go on the radio and say I think we'd all be better off if America was a country with with all Christians in it. And you say, well, are you in favor of making people do that? No but we'd be better off if we were. And and that's my honest, but but all General Flynn was expressing was a personal opinion. He wasn't in the government. How did they say that that violates anything? He's a private citizen. He can voice any opinion he wants. I do. Absolutely. And, um, he, Flynn even said that the decision to rescind
10: his honorary degree represented cancel culture.
0: Jen Cabani is an editor with a college fix. Jen, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Hey, does the high price of CBD have you rationing or just doing without? You shouldn't have to live that way. Get the relief you need right now. Go to GenericCBD.com. They sell premium CBD for less, a lot less. Here's an example. A leading brand of CBD salve costs about 50 bucks. At GenericCBD.com, it's on sale. nineteen ninety five. The amazing CBD muscle and joint cream that I've been telling you about the last few weeks, you see similar creams selling for up to $80. And that's if you can can find it at genericcbd.com. It's in stock and on sale 29.95. That's a $50 savings. They have incredible prices on all their CBD products, but you're not going to find them in any store, at least not yet. You can only get them at genericcbd.com. Give them a try. You might be shocked at how much money you save. That's genericcbd.com, your number one source for generic CBD. genericcbd.com. These products and statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease or illness your phone calls and emails and maybe even a good naysayer coming up next on the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a monday it's honestly provocative talk radio for america and i think it's a question how just how crazy are some of the woke agencies, even in the private sector, going to get. So you may have heard that the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, I've never met the man. Uh, I look forward to having him on the show one of these days, and who knows where his aspirations may take him, even the White House. But he's been applauded for his support of Jewish Americans. So does it make any sense for him to be banned from the Jewish Heritage Museum? I thought we'd put the question to our the perfect recipient, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, who's managing director at the Coalition for Jewish Values, the largest rabbinic public policy organization in America. Rabbi, welcome back. And do you have some sense as to why they're banning Ron DeSantis?
11: Uh, good evening, and uh, <laughs> they lack sense, or at least they lack Jewish sense, because they, they've they clearly placed woke leftist priorities ahead of Jewish priorities, because, again, like you pointed out, here's a man who's been a great friend of our community, uh, and, of course, he has a pro-parent uh, policy, and, and the woke left can't stand for that. And it was for that reason, pretty clearly, he was uh, disinvited.
0: Yeah, but I just, I don't understand. You know, they they talk about classically cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, Not... maybe i shouldn't use that metaphor but what in the world do they have in mind to say you can be a, as good a friend of israel or as good a friend of jewish americans as you want and yet and still if you don't hold these other views then we're going sim- to we're going to ban you we don't even want to hear what you have to say that one just doesn't make sense to me rabbi
11: look at the orwellian misuse of language when they when they rejected having uh, Governor DeSantis speak. They said it's because our policies of inclusivity uh, are, are what he doesn't stand for. So it's inclusive to not let somebody have their say, <laughs> even at even when they're paying for the space. It's obviously, you know, this is a distorted value where you have to follow a certain narrative and toe a certain ideological line all in the name of so-called tolerance and so-called inclusivity. It's it's only as insane as it sounds.
0: You know, Rabbi, I have you on the show from time to time. You're nice enough when we call you up to say, well, I'll give you my point of view. I've had some people on the show, and I and I will continue to do it, who are who are truly have execrable points of view. I mean, years ago, I talked to some of the knuckleheads from the uh, uh, the uh, Westboro Baptist Church. You know, the Phelps clan. You know, and and they're certifiably insane, as far as I'm concerned. And people would say, "Well, why would you have that person on, or why would you talk to a serial killer, or why?" And I said, "Because I want my audience to hear what they have to say, not because I agree with it." but because I believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. If you really think somebody has execrable, you know, viewpoints on something, boy, put it out there in front of God and everybody, and, and, and nature will take its course, won't it?
11: If you look back at history, one of the functions of the Nazi brown shirts was to shut down dialogue, to not prevent... People who opposed the Nazis, whether they be other political figures, the Jewish community, you need to stop them from having their say. Shouting them down, deplatforming them, don't let there be a discussion and dialogue. Usually people who are doing that are the people whose ideas cannot stand up to critical examination. If you come in shouting down a speaker because the the speaker represents views you don't like, it's because your own views cannot possibly be accepted unless they're the only views people are allowed to hear.
3: You
0: know it's funny because uh because the there's a a person who's been banned from Twitter and I think is back now, maybe not. It's a young lady, but she began to i guess amuse herself and make a point. By finding crazy things that liberals say on, you know, on social media and simply republishing it, you know, on on uh, on her own Twitter account. And it was so effective because all she was she wasn't editing them. She wasn't adding funny, you know, uh, facial features. She wasn't doing any of that. She was just saying, hey, look what they're saying. You know, because she would find them saying these in, 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 I guess, what these people thought were relatively protected corners of social media. And she would expose this by putting it on Twitter. And all of us got, I mean, I got I got some great sound bites out of it to use on the show. Can you believe what these crazy people are saying? That's hugely effective. And I just wonder, are the Democrats and the liberal progressive woke types in American society, are they becoming the, the society of the brown shirts?
10: It's, you know, I I
11: don't know if I would quite go that far, but you certainly see that in the so-called pro-Palestinian movement when a Jewish person uh, from Israel is routinely, you know, shouted down, when they won't allow Ben Shapiro to speak with threats of violence. The idea here is don't allow there to be dialogue. Uh, I believe you were talking about libs of TikTok when you said yeah libs of t- that's that's the one of. the
0: young lady yep libs of TikTok right
11: of the folks on the left who again you know the the when the Washington Post went after her they pointed out she's an Orthodox Jewish woman just to kind of maximize the amount of hate sent her way to kind of again silence her deplatform her don't allow uh, it to be out there. but all she was doing again was providing greater coverage of these lgbtq activists in their own words describing what they're doing in the classroom and what they're doing to children
0: in many cases rabbi i think they are their own worst enemy Unbelievable. Thank you. Rabbi Yaakov. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to mypatriotsupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to mypatriotsupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network. Naysayers go to the head of the line on the Radio Northwest Network, and we do what we can to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, and we try to provide honestly provocative talk. One other way you can take part, uh, if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, it, it doesn't cost anything, and we always let you know how the vote went. Should lawmakers in Washington, so this is Olympia, should they sign off on Governor Jay Inslee's, get this, $100 million electric car subsidy plan? Now, my vote on that is no. It, it uses my tax money. And I would say no. If you want to tell me that electric cars are the best thing since sliced bread, good. Let people buy them. You say, but we have to, they're like that old joke about the kid who is so ugly they had to tie a pork chop around his neck to get the family dog to play with the kid that ugly. Um, in this case, Jay Inslee is saying electric cars, they're the latest, they're the greatest you ought to buy them. And they're so popular. Yeah. They're so popular that they number less than 1% of all automobiles in America and about 1% of all automobiles in the Pacific Northwest, even in the woke greeny Pacific Northwest, they're not very popular. So Jay, Jay Inslee is saying, we want to take $100 million to dramatically expand incentives for Washington residents to buy electric vehicles. But even state lawmakers, even in Olympia, where the Democrats dominate much of the legislature, House and Senate lawmakers are deciding if and in what form to include the measure in their operating budget for the fiscal year that begins July 1. The state payments would be up to $7,500 on top of up to $7,500 federal subsidy. In other words, this is an extraordinarily ugly kid and you got to tie two or three pork chops and a T-bone steak around the kid's neck to get the family dog to play with him. That's the message that Jay Inslee is communicating. Should lawmakers sign off on Governor Jay Inslee's $100 million electric car subsidy plan? And again, I know that people, there are people who call me and they love their electric car. Good. Did you love it enough to actually buy it with your own money? And if you didn't, then why should the rest of us pay for it for you? Anyway, today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, we always go to naysayers first. So Steve is a naysayer. Steve, what do you and I disagree about today? And thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network.
12: Thank you, Lars. Um, Last week, you made a few negative comments about the post office. And uh, I don't think you were really fair and balanced. And I would like to give the balance.
0: Okay, what I said, just so people, uh, everybody else listening, you listen closely, clearly. I said the post office tells the government. The post office is an optional part of the federal government. It's not required by the Constitution. It's allowed. They say in the next 10 years, we will lose $160 billion. They are $60 billion upside down right now, and they would like a bailout. So the U.S. Congress has passed a piece of legislation. It still delivers mail six days a week, which could be changed to reduce costs. But they've said we're going to do this because why? And and you give me the alternate point of view, because I, I'd love to hear a good naysayer on this.
12: Well, I'm speaking from experience because I'm a 39-year retired, uh, now retired letter carrier. I figured. And I started in California and finished up in Southern Oregon. And during my tenure in the post office, which was from 1982 to 2021, I read just about everything I know about the post office in periodicals, newspapers, uh, what I heard on the radio and so forth. Okay. Uh, now, Steve, I have to I warn you,
0: if you're going to spend a lot of time on background, we're not uh, going no. to get to it. And then everybody's going to yell at me and say, you didn't let Steve make his point.
12: Where are we headed? Yes. Okay, well, that is leading up to say for the 25, first 25 years I was in the post office, it was fiscally sound. It, I saw the budget reports. They may have lost 2 or $3 billion in one year, but they made up for it in the subsequent years. And the Postal Service is a nonprofit organization. In fact, if it makes too much profit, it's not allowed to. So it, should break, it should out, break
0: even is what you're saying. Right. Break
12: even, Yeah. And well, it me, doesn't it even.
0: hasn't broken even in over a decade. And the next decade yes. is going to be one hundred and sixty yes. billion in cost yes. to taxpayers who were promised by the post office. If you let us be independent, we'll pay our bills. And now they're saying, hey, we got one hundred and sixty billion coming. We're already 60 billion upside down. And we'd like the taxpayers to eat that
12: yeah well let me let me just make my point and then I'll comment on what you just said uh because you may not be aware of this, but uh the postal service was accused in around two thousand to two thousand and six somewhere around there that they were not making uh, uh the correct contributions to um civil service retirement. that They, they weren't were following under- the law. Yeah, they weren't following um, the law. They did an audit. An audit was done and found out that the Postal Service overpaid somewhere between 35 to $55 billion.
0: Now, Actually, that's, service- that, I've read the General, Account, General Accounting Office report, and it doesn't say that. It says the post office is underfunding its pension, and this is from the General Accounting Office of the federal government. And remember, the post office is still a federal agency. It's an independent federal agency, and it said, we will follow the rules Congress sets down for us. We'll fund our pensions. And I know, Steve, the standard line is, well, you're asking us to fund them out 75 years. And I said, well, if you've got a 25-year-old postal worker who's going to work there till he's say 65, which is 40 years from now, and then he's going to retire, let's say, and live for another 30 or 40 years. You have to fund the pensions so they can be paid out over the next 75 or 80 years, because that's how long postal workers are going to be collecting them, bare minimum, even if the post office ceases to exist. So how would you suggest that we fund those pensions? And the general accounting office said, if the post office does not fund these pensions them itself, then the taxpayers are on the hook to pay them.
12: Well, first of all, I'm not for any kind of a bailout. What I'm asking for is a level playing field. Level with what?
0: Because there is no no, other entity quite like the Postal Service. It's not a private company. It's not a non-for-profit charity. And it's not a a full-on government agency. It's an independent government agency.
12: But it does have competition. It has UPS, FedEx. It has Uh, Internet. By law,
0: who owns all first-class mail in America?
12: By law. By law, the Postal Service has a monopoly on first-class
0: mail. And, and what's happening to first-class mail right now? Well, it's diminishing. Uh, dr- dramatically. I'll tell you what, Dramatic. I'm going I'm to do yes, right it. by you. I'm going to hold you through the break. But okay. I want you to explain who you want to pay the bill. And if the post office promised to pay the bill, and now they're saying, we don't want to pay the bill, we want somebody else to do it, tell me how that's going to work out for taxpayers who are told you're not going to pay the bill. Back in just a moment. Glad to be with you. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. And yeah, you can check us out out, out on Rumble on and Getter and everything else. I love a good naysayer. And Steve has been... And Steve, do you know what I consider a good naysayer? And you are a naysayer. We disagree about things, but... We we engage in a conversation. And by the way, this segment is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. So, Steve... You told me you, you took issue with some of the things I said last week about the mm-hmm. Postal Service, which got a bailout from the U.S. Congress. It was a bipartisan bailout. They said, we're going to forgive the Postal Service of a bunch of its obligations under the law because the place is losing money at a rate of about $16 billion a year. And you said, well, they used to break even. And, and you're right, until about 2007. And I can cite the source on that. So what do you do mm-hmm. to fix that this broken entity?
12: Well, I guess we have a difference of opinion on, or uh, our sources are different on uh, the overpayment into the retirement system. Uh, My number,
0: my source is the Uh, Government Accountability Office. I said General Accounting Office. It's the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, which is charged with looking at federal agencies, everybody, the Pentagon and everybody else, and making sure their books add up. And I can, and this is as of September of last year. They said in fiscal 2007, the expenses of the post office began exceeding revenue. And I pointed out to you that one of the reasons for that is the post office used to get almost 85 percent of its revenue from first class mail and first class mail, whether you like it or not, is going away. And they had a legal monopoly on it. Nobody in America was allowed to even compete with the post office and they would go after you with lawyers if you did. So they're losing their main. It'd be like if everybody stopped buying hamburgers, where's McDonald's? Well, McDonald's to hamburgers is what the post office and first class mail is. When your number one source of revenue goes away, what do you do? Well, you either change or you become one more big, uh, big, you know, entity that goes out of business because you're not bringing enough to pay the bills.
12: Well, I'll speak to that, what you just said in a moment. But my numbers come from the Office of Budget Management um, as far as the retirement. Uh, so we may differ on that, but I would use the proceeds, the 35 to 55 billion that were overpaid would be applied to um, the financial crisis. The I don't, I don't think it's right.
0: overpaid though, because every single, uh, you know, and I know this gets a little complicated, but the, the government said, if you want to, and by the way, your pension, just so people understand it, postal workers generally have a pension, unlike what the rest of us have. The rest of us have 401ks and IRAs. The post office have old school pensions that were called yeah. uh, defined benefit pensions, meaning if you work here so many years, we will give you a percentage of your working income based on what you were making and what your years of service were. And it guaranteed an amount of money, whether the money was there or not. Most of the rest of us put money in a 401k and whatever's in there when you retire, that's what you got. And if you're short, you say, well, it's tough to be short it with the government. It's it's we're going to pay you the money, even if we don't have the money, because we can always go out and sock it to the taxpayers.
12: So. Well, that's part of it. I don't disagree with you on. I have always said the postal service should not get a bailout. They should not get one thin dime of taxpayer money. They need yeah. to make it. They either need to rise or fall. Based on their own management.
0: Okay, then let me point out to you that last week, when they did this bailout in Congress, and it was both Republicans and Democrats voted for it, yes. the Post Office itself said to the Congress, in the next 10 years, we are forecast to lose $160 billion. We're yes. already upside down, and we're going to lose $160 yes. billion more. So, there, I'm citing as a source the agents used to work for. And according to the government accountability office september 21 of last year 2021 september 20 of 2021 they said in 2007 expenses exceeded revenues this has led to losses of 87 billion from fiscal years 07 through 2020 and 188 billion in unfunded liabilities and debt most unfunded liabilities for government have to do with pensions uh Oregon has an unfunded liability on its pensions of fifty two billion dollars. California is a quarter of a trillion dollars. I would bet you without looking into the the you know the inner numbers that of that hundred and eighty eight billion in unfunded liability meaning it's money you owe but money you do not have that's where they owe the money Now you seem to think they've got this debt out there somewhere or they've got this Cash out there that they somehow put in of 35 billion. Even if I granted you the 35 billion, if the government accountability office says, as of last September, they were 87 billion underwater 07 through 2020 and currently had, as of last September, 188 billion in unfunded liabilities, even if I gave you and said, okay, you're right about the 35 billion. I don't know where that number came from, but say I give it to you. It still leaves them 150 billion short and on track to lose 160 billion over the next 10 years, which means 10 years from now, when we're having this conversation, they're going to be a third of a trillion dollars underwater.
12: Right. And a lot of that problem is, I think the McDonald's comparison doesn't work, because the Postal Service did have an opportunity to raise more revenue had they negotiated a good deal with Amazon. And they negotiated
0: a bad deal. Everybody agree. Oh, I mean, Trump made a big deal. It's, but it's, but it was the post office that negotiated the bad deal because they wanted to keep cash it.
12: flowing in, right? The Board of Governors. Yeah. And I had long said that the Postal Service keeps shooting itself in the foot and eventually it's going to hit the heart. And that may have happened.
0: Do you know why and they did that deal, Steve? Even during the 08 uh, downturn, economic downturn, and even during the pandemic the last year, do you suppose there are a lot of private businesses, including construction companies, that said, we're going to go do a deal. It's going to make a million dollars flow through our company, but we're going to lose 50000 on the deal. You go, why would you do a deal that loses money? Because you can grab the contract and it keeps the cash flow moving. And if you don't offer that kind of deal, then you don't get the contract. There are lots of even individuals who say, whatever it takes to keep cash flowing through, even if I'm losing money, at least there's cash flow going on. And yeah. most people can kind of stretch their themselves out, businesses too, by saying, we've got cash flow coming through. And you say, but you're losing money every year. Yes, but we're hoping to get to that year in the future where we'll, we'll actually make more than we, than we lose. And, and, yeah. but the problem is it's a short term strategy. The post office is now saying
12: we're going to lose $160 billion in the next 10 years. How does that work? It was a bad deal. But let me say one thing. It will be a shame if the Postal Service goes out because it employs I over agree. 600,000 employees. Many of them are vets. It's going to lose. We're going to lose a trillion dollars in the economy because there's a lot of things that support the post office. Paper companies, stationery, uh, printing companies, um, mail rooms, and so forth. So we're going to lose some money. In our economy, if the Postal Service goes out, and it'll be an awful shame, but I agree with you. Hey, the Postal Service has to run it like any private industry, in that if private industry screws up, they make bad managerial decisions and bad agreements, they go under.
0: Right. Right. And by the way, Steve, right here in the Northwest, Boeing had their, you know, 737 MAX screw up, right? And they lost Uh money last year. But they know they're going to make enough money going forward that they can fix that. But yeah. what happens to private companies like, I don't know, you know, name some of the big retailers that went under, you know, and said, well, you know, we didn't bring in as much money as it cost. And we went under. And if you want a level, level playing field, as far as I'm concerned, that's a level playing field. If you're going to if you're going to be a third of a trillion dollars in debt in 10 years, you are functionally bankrupt today. Steve, great here. back in a moment. It's the Radio Northwest Network.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. My friend Kevin Mannix, the attorney, the president of Common Sense Oregon, business attorney, former chair of the Republican Party, ran for governor as well. Kevin, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm doing fine, Lars. How are you? I'm not doing too badly. So you've been in court against Kate Brown. Uh so uh, what what what's the result of all this because you were seeking to make the case that the governor was acting a bit like a like a I don't know a queen of the state
13: <laughs> well put uh we had a one hour argument which is an unusual amount of time before the Oregon Court of Appeals three judges this morning and i was first defending our victory in circuit court where the circuit court said that kate brown cannot give extra jurisdiction to the parole board to reduce certain sentences. And so we were defending that against the state, challenging it. But then we're still calling on the courts to issue what's called mandamus, a mandate to the governor that she must follow the clemency statutes and let let the district attorneys and the victims be heard when she's reviewing each clemency case. So we presented our argument to the Court of Appeals today, and, uh, and we'll be standing by waiting for a decision from them so we're still in the fight
0: now if you win in this case because kate brown she had some complicated gyrations the way i see it she said i want to give clemency to all these people but then i want the, it to look as though the board, uh, the parole board is is somehow involved in the decision when the the right of clemency is the right of a governor and nobody else if you win you got a partial victory in the circuit court and you're asking the court of appeals for a full victory in this case if you get it what happens?
13: What happens is the governor has to follow the process of the law. And if she wants to be granted clemency, in each case, she needs to gather up all the facts, notify the district attorney, allow the victim to be involved, hear their comments, have all of that presented under the record, and then she has to wait 30 days before rendering a decision. It's a processing, and I'll call it due process as the clemency and she's the only governor since 1864 when they passed these laws who hasn't followed this process and it's important because that means she has to be gathering information and reviewing it and she doesn't get to hand it off to somebody else or the parole board okay but you kevin kevin you left something
0: out the the way i heard it you left something out you're talking prospectively she has to do that from this point forward what about the people she's already cut loose from prison, including killers? Do you have to go back with those and, and redo those uh, and reconsider their release and haul them back into custody? Or is there any fix for the one she's already done?
13: Uh, I'm going to be careful about my answer to you, because in this case, we're, we're asking that she be told she has to follow the law. Once we have a decision that she has to follow the law, we'll be evaluating what we can do about the old cases. Well, and I when we say old cases, we're only talking rate. about the last few months, right? Correct. And what I'm being, I'm being careful here, Lars, because the way we've set this case up, it's only for right now, Mandamus telling her she has to follow this process. Once we've established that, we get to go back and evaluate the effect of her failure to follow the process in the past.
0: Well, can I, can I... I'm being a lawyer, I, Lars. <laughs> I know you have to, I, I and I'm not a lawyer, thank God, but is... If you, if you get a win, if this Court of Appeals says, okay, you win, she has to follow the law, is there likely to be a case to be made that some of the people already released will have to be brought back?
13: Let me put it this way. Um, one could certainly make such a case. I'm parsing my words because I am the lead lawyer in this litigation. Okay. And uh, so, I don't want folks to – I don't want to twist around things for the current litigation – but we have certainly looked at the bad things that have happened and what can be done later to clean them up.
0: OK, because, Kevin, you understand one of the biggest frustrations for citizens that, that I hear about all the time that I express frustration about is saying, well, when we catch the government actually doing something wrong, uh, is there a to use lawyer language? Is there a remedy? Is there a fix for it? And fixing it from this point forward is part of it. But fixing what they've already done, especially if they've done it not decades in the past, but months in the past, should be within the reach of the law, shouldn't it?
13: Yes, it should be. And the way they handle that would be in a separate case. And I'm going to be careful and not say much more, but you're on track, Lars.
0: Okay, because uh, you you, and and the partial victory you got from the circuit court. um, Would you mind describing that for my audience? What did the circuit court say you were
3: right
13: about and it's been upheld on appeal so far and the circuit court cannot be given jurisdiction to shorten sentences where they didn't have jurisdiction before the, the governor tried to give them the authority to retroactively look at those who were under the 18 who were age of 18 who were sentenced for violent crimes and to give them a chance to shorten those sentences on their own and, uh, and the circuit court said, and agreed with us, she can't do that. She cannot give jurisdiction to the board of parole where they don't have jurisdiction. She can't delegate her clemency powers. So um, that is still in place. And the parole board is not able to hold a bunch of hearings to reduce sentences for people who were duly convicted and sentenced in the past. And whose it's, it's truth in sentencing. Those sentences are still in effect.
0: Can you take off your lawyer hat for a moment, put your politician hat back on, and I'll I'll ask one that I think is within. Okay, Kevin, why does anybody in government right now think it's a great idea to cut loose convicted criminals and send the message to other criminals that we're dramatically reducing the penalties for doing things that hurt people? Why does anybody think that's a good idea?
13: Uh, The only people who think it's a good idea, in my opinion, are a minority of people who don't get it, who don't understand that accountability is important, that justice is important, and that incapacitation is important. Because these violent criminals, they're the worst of the worst, and they're the ones that are going to do it again. And when you release them early, you're putting everyone at risk. Now, so I i find it hard to explain the mentality of these folks who take this position, because the majority of my fellow citizens don't take that position. They apply common sense. And when someone rapes a woman or assaults someone else in a bar and and stabs them in the back um, or murders somebody, uh, they've done terrible things. They're predators. They need to be held accountable for the protection of society. And releasing them early eliminates truth in sentencing, which we established back in 1989, and then we strengthened it with mandatory minimum prison sentences for violent crimes my Measure 11. And crime went down for 10 years straight because the word got around that if you did bad things, you were going to be held accountable. And now the message is, hey, do drugs, measure 110, which was a false advertising in terms of how it was presented to the voters. Uh, We have a whole problem now where the message is, hey, do a crime and don't do the time.
0: And Kevin, by the way, I don't know if, if you caught what was on right before you came on, I just talked to a a hemp, a guy who's in the hemp business, he makes CBD, uh, he also makes hemp gummies, and you say, well, those are legal to sell to kids. Apparently, the OLCC and the ODA have made it effectively legal a week from tomorrow to start selling intoxicating levels of THC in hemp to underage persons in Oregon.
13: That's incredibly stupid.
0: I would say so, too. Because what is the state going to do? We've legalized hard drugs for adults, effectively legalized it, de facto legalization. And now we're going to legalize getting high
13: is legalization as far as I'm concerned.
0: Oh, I, I think it is legal. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. But I mean, I've been telling and they say, well, it's not full legalization it's still a violation. I said, yes, it's a violation for which you get a ticket that you don't have to pay. So it's like it's a distinction without a difference. That is Kevin Mannix, attorney, uh, president of Common Sense Oregon and former chair of the Republican Party and one time candidate for Oregon governor. Coming up in a moment, a lot of you like our Jim Gossett parody guy. He's got an offering in honor of the J6 committee. And I'll get to your phone calls and emails in the next segment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's Conspiracy Theory Thursday, and you're welcome to call into the show. If you're a naysayer, you'll go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can remember that is 866-HEY-LARS. You can send me emails, talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, and today's Twitter poll reads this way. Should elected county sheriffs refuse to enforce red flag laws... Because they are clearly unconstitutional. Or would you tell an elected county sheriff, doesn't matter if it's constitutional, just go ahead and arrest people or take their guns away? I don't think that makes much sense, which kind of puts Congress's action on a gun bill in an entirely different light since the red flag laws are a big part of that. But I want to talk about something that you could view as a conspiracy. Can you imagine if an institution called the public schools run by the government that on which we spend tens of billions of dollars and they say we will educate your kids in fact unless you provide some other kind of education for them they are required to be sitting in a classroom in a public school from kindergarten to 12th grade and then when the schools say you know we've got some really lousy graduation rates is there any way we can fix this and they decide to fix it by just changing the grades Lee finna is the director of the center for education of the washington policy center Lee, welcome back to the program and tell me what the folks in north shore school district near seattle tell me what they've done to try to i guess just fix the whole game well
14: it's 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 a disgrace they have decided to lower academic learning standards there by giving by by making it uh un unallow by disallowing uh teachers from giving students a failing grade, meaning they've passed a a resolution that all children will pass, pass. Uh, the lowest grade that a child can get in North Shore is a D. And, uh, you know, this is part of uh, the, the aftermath of the COVID school shutdown. A lot of the children are not uh, up to par and the, schools want to present high graduation rates remember these kids are just graduating some of them and they can't graduate if they don't pass certain classes and so what they've done is lowered the standard for passing the classes
0: so a passing grade is now a d but but leave i know you, you and you've attributed to to the pandemic but is it fair to say since you've been following this a long time the schools have had failure when it comes to graduation rates long before COVID arrived on our shores from China, didn't they?
14: Yes. Yes, that is true. That is true. For a long time, the students in Washington State have not passed the state tests in English and math, yet our graduation rates are in the 80 percent rate. That's still not very good. That still means that 20 percent are failing. But of the 80 percent that are passing, they're not all meeting the minimum set by the state in terms of skills and knowledge in math and English, so this just sets them up for failure after high school, and this is this has been a long-term trend. It's just getting. It's just that now we're actually seeing uh, union agreements, a memorandum of understanding passed uh, in North Shore, one of the better school districts north of Seattle, saying that no child in sixth through twelfth grade can get a failing grade. Which is, well, of course, it. The losers in this are the children. And the taxpayers in Washington state. The and and is the communities. Itself.
0: Because, leave. And th- the community. So, we literally have the. Because you and I both talked about unions. I'm not a fan. I don't think you are either, especially in the way that they adversely affect education. But in this case, the unions actually went in and used their muscle to get the school district to say, we will call a D a passing grade. Or, and, and in fact, we'll call Fs Ds, right?
14: Yes, they call, they're calling F's no credits, and then the kids, in order to earn the credit, can go to um, summer school and get a credit to pass the class. You see, and that's a lower level standard. So even it's if way they no, but this is
0: decade. is that true? Even if they fail the class, so they get an F, and they say you have to go to summer school. They go to summer school and they get an F again, but the lowest they can get is a D, which means technically they passed. Have <laughs> I got any of that wrong?
14: I, th- I think that's correct. I mean, they, they no longer give an F. They give a no credit. Send a kid to a class uh, to make up that credit, and they can't give an F. So there you are. And You're
0: by correct. the way, Lev, uh let, let's remind people, the McCleary decision said under the Washington State uh, Constitution that the public was obligated to adequately fund education. And that created, would you mind reminding me or m- remind the audience, over the last decade or so, how much have we increased spending on public education?
14: Well, we have gone in the last 10 years from $10,000 per student on average statewide to $18,175 per student on average statewide, which means that just rich districts like Seattle's are spending $22,000 per student on, on, a, on children's education. We're basically, the McCleary decision basically forced the taxpayers of Washington State to write a blank check to an institution that is... Uh, that is that demonstrably failed during COVID and is not passing uh, adequate numbers of children and getting them ready for their lives after high school. I mean, the state test last fall showed that 70% of the students are failing in math, failing in math. 70% of the students of Washington State have failed the state math test. And you know what that means. If you don't have adequate skills in math, you cannot gain, you know, an entrance to a good college or a good trade school for that matter. You can't matter. Get, you get a, need a good job.
0: Can, can you get a good job at Starbucks making change if you can't do math? No. That's Lee Fenner from the Washington Policy Center. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup.
0: So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to IRAadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at IRAadvantage.com.